Welcome to the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Eastcheck. And I am Andrew Whaley. Today we're going to talk about thinking big. So wait, what, what episode are we on? We're on 31? Is this episode 31? Yeah, well, I don't think I said the episode name in the last one. You did, did not. Lasso. This that, is episode 31. That scintillating episode with P.A. DeSalini that you surely just listened to, and now you're just, you've been just listening to them one right after another. That right. was episode 30. This is episode 31. You've been binge podcast listening. Inevitably. Right. Because once you get on the, the over-the-counter train, there's no getting off. It is pure scintillating infotainment. <laughs> and, and you don't need a prescription to listen to over-the-counter. Yeah. It's legal. In we have all legal, 50 states. We, we have, we have, we, we, we've gotten... Unlike certain other great state. <laughs> so I, I, I'm telling you, that is a great idea. I, I was telling Mark just now that I think that we should combine uh, policy. And if you're going to have a concealed carry license, you have to have a medical marijuana card. So if you're going to have, if you're going to be armed, you have to prove that you're mellow. If we're going to combine these two things, so so there's a so if you're hearing politicians listening, no, but you probably shouldn't be allowed to obtain prescription meds if you uh, have a concealed carry. What do you mean, like antibiotics or something? No, I mean like mind-altering substances. Oh, okay, like Zoloft. And Prozac. Well, no, there's a whole different yeah. podcast the, the, about the, whole, the connection yeah. between mass shootings yes. and yes. mind-altering SSRIs. But yes. We should do one. We should talk about SSRIs sometime. It's such a fraught topic. I've been on Zoloft, so I got, I've got an insight. There you go. Personal experience. Yeah, a stupid doctor put me on Zoloft. I went with my all that, that big laundry list that, of symptoms. That is a really important topic. No, it's super important. I had this big laundry list of symptoms that in the long run turned out to be Hashimoto's disease and a gluten sensitivity causing Hashimoto's disease, which my body attacks my thyroid. I took this laundry list of symptoms to a bunch of different doctors over the course of 10 years. I was put on Ritalin. I was put on Zoloft. I was put on, I was given prednisone for the the inflammation in my joints. They found the sleep apnea, which I did have, but why do I have sleep apnea? Sinus headaches, all these. Turns out it was carpal tunnel syndrome. It's like... And they kept giving me different stuff for all the different. At one point, they tried to put me on lithium. And it was just, it was wheat. <laughs> don't eat a sandwich. <laughs> just yeah. Don't have the pizza. That's all it was, was wheat. And they tried to put me on lithium at one point. So it's like, yeah, Zoloft um, destroyed my sleep. I was like super happy about everything, but I couldn't sleep. It just gave me such, that's yeah, that's why I dropped out of um, TAC in 2002. Yeah. It's like I hadn't slept in two weeks. And I thought I was going to flunk classes. This is insane. Yeah. Yeah, Zoloft. We should talk about that sometime. But, we're, but anyway, today, we're not going to talk about Zoloft. No. In this episode, we want to talk about thinking big. We should call it the think magic big. of thinking big. Oh, that's a, already a book, isn't it? Big thinking. Big thinking. What do we mean by big thinking, Mark? I think what we mean is the kind of thinking that leads uh, to uh, revolutions in science, technology, humanity, all sorts of things. Yeah. So, and sometimes thinking big is actually thinking really small. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, I mean, let's just give a couple interesting examples of big thinking, right? Well, by big thinking, we mean, you know, if your day-to-day project list, you know, your to-do list is the runway, and your outcomes are kind of 10,000 10, feet. We're talking about 60,000 feet. We're talking about stuff bigger than why you're on the planet. We're talking about humanity and what's been going on for the last few hundred years, where we're headed, what's going 
you know, what is humanity going to need? What's going to, what should happen in the next hundred years and what can we do to affect that? We're yeah. talking about huge, high level, big picture thinking is what we're talking about, right? Right. I mean, I think there are some examples of it that, I mean, are, are mixed, right? Uh, I mean, I think the development of uh, the nuclear bomb and, and nuclear technology mm-hmm. was a, an example of big thinking, but... Not, well, not big enough, though. They thought about yeah. the strategic use of this, but they didn't think about long-term, like, oh, God, what could this mean, right? You know, they couldn't see far enough, right? If they got another 10,000 feet up, maybe they I, wouldn't have built it. No, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean the one of the parts of, of the big thinking behind the development of nuclear weapons was Edward Teller's idea of this like stalemate that would emerge. Yeah. Right? That 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 one country would develop it and have this like monopoly, the US, mm-hmm. but then eventually other countries would develop it and there would be like this giant stalemate because nobody would want, would want to press the button. Well, I mean, that's kind of happened. It's kind of happened. Yeah, and, I mean, and you're, you're kind of thinking, well, maybe Edward Teller was right, even though people, it's really creepy. People, people saber saber rattle, but I mean, it's like this is Ray, this is Reagan, right? He's like, you have a we, big stick. And we and, can't forget that the only know. country that ever did use the bomb was the United States. Yeah, we did, which is terrifying. To yeah, think about the moral responsibility involved in that. But oh, that's just a whole different. That that would be a whole podcast that we could explore the historical. The yeah, moral but, significance of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. But the, but the scientists who were behind the development of the bomb could see a world that other people didn't even know could exist, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and they thought that world was better, and so they decided to create that world by developing the bomb. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's hard to say whether they were right or not, right? But, I mean, if you think of, I mean, all of all of the wars that had taken place even before World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. they were massively destructive that involved millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you think of the wars that have taken place since and just think of like the gravity. Mm-hmm. I mean it's kinda interesting just to kind of sit back and think about Well and then now but now wars have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and less and now less and less people are involved in the, um, at least the attacking force. I mean, now they just run drones and you play on like video games from some hangar in the United States someplace. I mean, it's, there's a whole other thing to talk about at some point, the the depersonalization of violence um, and and the depersonalization of war. I mean, it's almost getting to the point of those... um, like science fiction novels about these like robot armies, you know, that attack each other. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that the people behind the army just kind of like if their side loses, just like, you know, right. then they lose, you know. It's almost like a modern giant technological version of the old thing where the cha- like David and Goliath or like the, the right. champion yeah, from exactly. each side would come out and like, look, we don't want to get everybody killed. Right. Let's just all agree that we're going to both put our big robot out there. It's yeah. like, you know, yeah. no, rock exactly. em, sock em robots or something. Yeah. But so, okay, good example. Let's talk um, So what I'm thinking about like with big thinking when we talk about this in this high perspective is like in some ways it's kind of like I'm thinking of like George Gilder and like this whole supply side thing like his book on wealth and poverty where it's like the the supply actually drives in a sense because people that think bigger people that are visionary it's like you say um okay you got the Pony Express or before the Pony Express and then someone comes on goes look if I could show you that you could order something or get a letter from New York and it would land here in California at this gold camp in only a couple of weeks. 
You're like, dude, that's awesome. That would be amazing. And then you get the Pony Express or whatever, and it's like, oh, we could actually get it here like in under a week. I'm like, dude, that is amazing. That's what I wanted. They think that's what they wanted. Then you go, hey, well, there's this thing called the postal system. And you can get a letter coast to coast in three days, and you don't, you know, it's a, it almost always makes it. Well, that's what we really wanted. But really, what they wanted was email, right? They want <laughs> what you want is you want because so then when you pull up to sixty thousand feet, it's like, what do you want? People want to be able to communicate and to make distance. You know, like we, ha- I can remember, I can remember being a kid. And you're going to make a long-distance phone call, and the whole family would gather around the phone. Yeah. You'd call grandma, and being someone who talks a lot, I was always kind of like, I'll keep it short, you know, because it's long distance. And now we all have unlimited yeah. work call. You can call people in China for free through Skype or whatever. Oh, yeah. And I'm just, I, just, I use Google Voice. I, a friend of mine lives in Canada, and I just reconnected with her last week. And it didn't even call. I, I, I was like, well, I got eight bucks in my my Google Voice account, that should cover it. It's like a few cents a minute or something. They change, it's, it's free. Yeah. I, I talked for two and a half hours to Canada, and it's, yeah. all my Google Voice is nothing, right? And so, um, so that's, what I, that's, that's what we're talking about, is like pulling way up here and going, okay, what is the real thing? Or where, what are the big trends that are going wrong that we could kind of fix? Or what are the big, pit, the big pitfalls coming if we if we just pull up high enough, we can see those and kind of like try to revert them. And not just on the technological side, on the on the on the moral side, or on the on the psychological side, or the, the yeah, I mean, the, the nutritional. I side. I think the the greatest. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think the greatest uh, change in our era is the internet. Yeah, and that we haven't that. quite figured out what the implications of the internet are. But I think one of the things that we're quickly seeing is that the internet. Um, is decentralized or sorry is yeah i guess decentralizing information in such a way that um government oversight of information Mm -hmm. is going to disappear yeah uh and that the more governments try to contain the internet the more it's going to spring out of their control um i mean i think you see this really clearly with like the sony hack Mm-hmm. Right, and the the reality that hackers living in another country hacked into Sony and put these movies out there on the internet, and there are millions of people able to download them without the permission of any government mm-hmm. or or any company. And so, um, or, or another great example of the way that the internet is kind of destabilizing things is the way that com- uh, multinational companies are now using the international banking system to avoid taxes, mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. through weird techniques like the double Irish, right? Yeah. Or, or, or re-centralizing locations. Like I think Burger King just um, went offshore to like Canada or Ireland or something technically. So now they're like an Irish company, so they pay less taxes than they did in the United States. And that kind of thing is becoming more and more possible with all the internet technology we have. Because well, I mean, that's, and, that's, and, then, and that's basically two trends coming together. You have the, digitiz- the digitization of formerly physical things, right. and then globalization—that's right. that's that's feeding. Right. The world's getting smaller and smaller, right? And so we can kind of—I mean—that's inter- that That's really—I mean—the internet, this ability to move these little packets of information back and forth, is definitely. Right. But just just the idea of the the digitization of formerly physical things is a huge. I mean, you used to have a book. 
And if I gave you that book, in fact, I just sent you a book. I gave you my book. I gave you my draft. Right. And I still have it because yeah. I just made a PDF and I right. mailed it to you. I'm right. like, hey, here's my new bookmark. And you're like, okay. Now I still have it and you have it. Now I could send it to 15 more people and we'd all have it. Yeah. And it didn't, no trees died in the process. <laughs> and it's like, it's a, and you're like, okay, well, what's it made out of? Well, I guess it used to be made out of like ones and zeros. I'm told that my, I always use that phrase ones and zeros. I've been told that that's not really binary. It doesn't work like that anymore. It's not how it is, but well, you know. Okay, okay. So, so there's that, that reality I think is also connected with another great challenge of our era, which I think is going to be the preservation of information. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's so much information being created in our information age, and yet so much of it is actually on very unstable medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so hard drives stink. We know this, right? They they fail after a period of time. Really? Yeah, all hard drives fail, and so but all this information that we've created is on hard drives. Now, in some ways, it's you know decentralized. It's on servers. It's in the cloud. Whatever else, but. It seems I'm sure the NSA is co- collecting it also. Yeah, right. Yeah, the NSA is going print- store it in their, their <laughs> server a, farm in Utah. Yeah. There's, a, there's, a, there's a giant base under the ground in Utah yeah. where basically they just print everything yeah. that we yeah. send. And they just put it in files. That's and why paper's gotten so expensive. It's yeah. just like a, there's this vast, vast like parking garage full of file f- four-drawer yeah. file cabinets with everything that everyone's ever said, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the thing is that we know that paper and ink is a very stable medium. Yeah. Right? Because we have found paper and ink or papyrus and ink from 2,000 years ago that we're still able to read. Uh, you know, and so there's something really, really stable about that way of That is so fascinating. But there's something really yeah. unstable about modern information. And so one thing that, I mean, I think slightly disconcerting is... Well, say, for example, there was a public library that opened up in Texas a year or two ago to great fanfare, the first public library without any books. All it had was computers. Wow. Right? Which, I mean, I understand, you know, e-books and, and the ability to read information on computers and all that kind of stuff. But we know that the paper and ink is a really st- stable way of storing information. Mm-hmm. Um, so what if lots of public libraries and university libraries and private libraries decide, you know, we would rather just digitize our collections and not have to worry about storing a bunch of books because it's expensive to store books. Right, right. And let's just get rid of our microfilm and microfiche and just put everything on the cloud. Well, what if the cloud fails and all that information disappears? Right. Right, it would be like the, the burning of the library at Alexandria. You know, I mean, that's how dramatic Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I think we need to have really rich people... <laughs> who are really concerned about the preservation of information and uh, about ways of preserving it for, for posterity. So there you go. There's, there's the kind of thing where we look at, you look at the global scope across history of how things have been done, these things that are advances, and now we're looking at something on the horizon 100, 200, 300 years from now, and it's like, okay, well, we're producing all this stuff, but we're not putting it onto a medium so there's a project. I right. mean, if somebody I mean, wants to come up with the new version of long-term storage for media that they can prove will work, th- then there there's a 
help to mankind that will probably make someone a lot of money somewhere along the way. Right. Know? There are examples of this that are active projects that are pretty interesting, right? There's the whole seed storage thing. I think it's the government of Norway is, is Yeah, the, air, the heirloom seed project or whatever. Right, they, so they're, like, storing all of the seeds to every plant that we know of. And what a cool building that's in. Well, it's in, like, an ice cave of some kind, right? But there's, like, a the, – the outside, like, there's a – there's like some kind of like this 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 big stark concrete thing on the outside of it or something that it's like one of the coolest looking buildings. If I've been, maybe I'm confusing um, two things. But. There's a new project that the Russians just launched, right, to save the DNA of every living thing or something like this. Um, so, so there mm. are projects underway that are like that, but I think seeds are huge because right. we've altered everything. Right, right. All, and, and now all this, these, these plants are owned copyright-wise or trademark or uh, patented by all these big companies that, or, that make pesticides. And, you know, somebody wants to it's, – it's illegal in some places to save seed. Well, or certain seeds. You can always obtain heirloom seeds from you – know, you can buy them. No, I mean like then, people that grow corn. Right. right you can't save your seeds. Yeah. <laughs> So all the seed is basically only good for one time, basically. Right. It's like you have to plant every year. Right. Which is – well, and then it's like, well, because we, we, we need to make it where you can put a bunch of chemicals on it. Mm-hmm. I well, what if, what if we just didn't put a bunch of chemicals on it? Well, then we wouldn't get as great a yield. I was, well, okay, well, what if we figured that out? You know, it's yeah, like, I, mean, I mean, another another thing that I think is on the horizon in, in the relatively near term, like maybe in the next couple decades, maybe not, but is um, – what you might call like the normalization of, or the, or maybe like the stabilization of computer technology. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by this is like we're already getting to the point where like you don't really need more gigabytes, you don't need more software programs, you don't need more, like we're you know like we're at the point where like laptops are starting to be commodified, mm-hmm. right? Where it's not you don't, I mean maybe you need it to be faster in some respects, but mm-hmm. It has plenty of computing power to do all of the things that you want to do with it. Well, I mean, and there's the. I mean, you look at the. I don't. My it isn't there yet, but I, I did a little experiment forced by my, my economics, <laughs> and I got a, my my Mac died, yeah. and I couldn't afford a new Mac for a while, so I bought a two hundred dollar Chromebook. And the idea of Chromebook and the cloud computing is that you don't need all this firepower in a laptop right. or in a computer. You need something that's very efficient to use a very fast internet connection to get a picture back and forth really quick right. and let a big box someplace in a warehouse do all crunch that Adobe Photoshop thing and then just move the picture back and forth really quickly. Right. And so it's like, it's, it's interesting. Maybe it's like we continue with Moore's Law, but at some point it becomes irrelevant. It's like, oh, I dub- we doubled again and right. I didn't really notice it because right. it was already so fast or whatever. Right. Know? So I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is like, I think we're going to, um, reach a point of, of where we're not thinking so much about what's the next latest, newest gadget and the next fastest computer, but we're going to be thinking more about like how is it that human beings can use computers the most efficiently, the most effectively in a mm-hmm. way that is best for humanity, right? And and I think that's a difficult question to answer. It's uh, yeah, there's a. That, that that is pretty interesting. I think. Right. I mean, let's just say we had all of the computing power we could possibly want. Right. What is the best way to use that power? Well, I mean, that kind of comes back around to. 
the bigger question, like we were talking about with the nuclear stuff, it's like, well, you know, but I mean, what, creating powerful pot, what, 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 spending a lot of time on giving yourself firepower, whether that's bits or bombs, right. but not spending equal amount of time thinking about how you use it once you get it, when it gets out of hand, you know? Right. Well, I mean, I mean, what we've seen already is that computer technology is destabilizing. It's disruptive to the market, which is maybe in some ways really good, right? Mm-hmm. It makes things a lot more efficient. It eliminates a lot of jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So it means that information processing is not something that human beings need to do anymore, mm-hmm. at least not on the kind of like nitty-gritty level. We have computers that can do things like store files and mm-hmm. store information and, and retrieve information. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, so a lot of jobs have already been eliminated because of that. Right. Uh, but maybe new jobs have been created. It's hard to know exactly. Right. I guess I'm wondering, like, what's the end game for all of that? Right. Now, there you go. That's a good question. And I, I don't think we have an answer. So that's, that's another one. You know, it's interesting. Like, um, look at the Internet. You have this, you know, the, the access that, that it has brought in so many different places. Look at the financial access. I mean, like online banking and investing and stuff. A friend of mine just sent me um, – uh, an invite. He got a few early release invites to this um, Robinhood.io. It's a new app that sits on your computer and your phone, or in your, in, on your phone, and it's basically if you're doing non-investor, not non-broker-assisted um, trades, you can do as many trades as you want with no with no um, fee, no cost. Hmm. So normally it's like up to you know, around 10 bucks or whatever. So you can buy some stock and it doesn't cost you anything for the transaction. So, I mean, and it's like, cause they don't have brick and mortar. They don't have a bunch of people sitting in offices someplace and everything. So there's interesting. And it's like, okay, but then what's going to happen is that you have, if we start moving that direction, then you're going to have a flood of people coming into a market that don't have the experience or the knowledge of how to act in a market. So it's kind of like, um, have you ever played? Yeah, have you ever played a, a game like I'm, I'm not a very good poker player. I don't know much about poker, and sometimes I'll get roped into playing Texas Hold'em with a bunch of my friends who are like hardcore poker players, and I'll sometimes beat them because I play completely illogically because I don't know the game right, on it, right. and they're all thinking, "Well, why would he do that? He's representing that he has this," and I'm, I just have no idea what I'm doing. So yeah. I made that play just because it seemed like a good idea to me at the moment. So I could throw the whole game off by not playing by the normal way people play. Now, what if you do that with a global economy like that? If because you right. start creating all this access to all these people, right? No, I mean there are there are great examples of this happening. I think one of the ones that is fascinating to me. I mean, this is like ten years ago. I was in Haiti, and Haiti doesn't have phone lines. Right. They just never had the wherewithal to install them, but they have cell phone towers. Mm-hmm. So they just like skipped over like a whole generation wow. of technology. Right. If you have cell phone towers, you don't need phone lines. Right. So there are places in, in sub-Saharan Africa, same thing, right, where you have, you have cell phone towers but no phone lines. Yeah, there's a lot of places where they, so, everyone I mean, does everything with their cell phones. I mean, the other, I mean, the next step for this is, like, what Google and Facebook are investing in, like, these crazy ideas of, like, basically building a giant Wi-Fi network for the whole planet mm-hmm. using crazy things like balloons, balloons or gliders yeah. or whatever else. And there are also a lot of people like are low, still— low-orbit satellites. And a lot of people are still using lo-fi flip phones in these right. third world countries. Right. And so people like Facebook, I, I re- a couple of years ago I heard this whole story about how they're trying to figure out how to create an experience of software 
on these crappy little phones that they can bring more people into their networks. Right, right. So that ultimately, I guess, like, but I mean, I'm like, for what? So you can sell them stuff? I mean, they don't have any money. It's like, how you, what do, why do you want them in your network? Well, so, I mean, what's just interesting to think about is, you know, you have these places that are very rural or very, you know, undeveloped, and then all of a sudden they're going to have the latest in internet technology and information. Mm-hmm. So that just creates weird scenarios. I mean, I mean, one really dramatic um, example of this was the terrorist attack on um, what was it in two thousand and eight or nine on a hotel in India. Oh yeah, yeah remember yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. And basically, you had not very many terrorists. It was like twelve guys, um, but they were being run by like a command center in Pakistan that was using Google Maps. And, like, live feeds from BBC television to, like, guide the terrorist attack. So there's, like, this horrific example where there are all these people hiding in this one room in this hotel. And one of them is granting an interview through Skype to BBC television. The command and control center running these terrorists is watching BBC, figures out what room they're in in the hotel, and then tells the terrorists who are on the ground, and they go in and, like, get these people. Oh, my God, it's amazing. Right, but, I mean, it's, like, almost incomprehensible, right? You're thinking, like, BBC is thinking the same way that they thought 20 or 30 years ago when this technology didn't even exist. And and now the terrorists are using that technology that's being given away for free by these giant first-world companies to kill people. (laughs) That's just just crazy. ah! Okay, so then kind of going on that that theme in – this might be a little esoteric, but going on that same theme of like what what people can what you intend with technology and then what it actually is used for. Right. What about um Right. I mean Google Maps is built for people to like get driving directions from one place to another or to like look at aerial shots of their house. Right. right. Not not for terrorist attacks. You know when it's funny, it's like I don't it's interesting because I mean, you know, you hear that what what you know what the government has as far as like you know they can do like facial recognition from satellites or something, you know. Right. And it's funny. I remember when Google Earth first came out. It was really clear. There was, I mean, we found our house. Yeah. And it was the refresh rate. I seemed like it was really high, like really often, and because a friend of ours, maybe it was just by coincidence. But a friend of mine pulled up in front, and we reloaded, and the the it showed his car in front of the house. What? And then later on, you couldn't you you couldn't even quite get that close to our house in, in Ventura. You couldn't quite get down to that level. Now you can go to street level again, but the footage is very old. Yeah. So, but when it first came out, we were all playing with it, and when you refreshed it, you could see cars moved. Hmm. And I think, and I, I heard rumors or whatever that they kind of, the the government was kind of like, yeah, don't do that. <laughs> You're gonna have to dial that back because you could use it for those reasons, right? right. You know, and it's yeah. like, so okay, so well, you think about that. You think about, um, so let's think about under the rubric of like technology and how it affects the human person because we're built to be we're we're built as a species under a certain. We've talked a lot about nutrition and the paleo thing and Weston A. Price and all that here. So you look at like yeah. sugar. Okay, we have built in us this desire for the sweet because when fruit is ripe, there's a bunch of antioxidants and a bunch of nutrients. Yeah, but we, we, don't even, we don't even have to go to food. I mean, just think of light. That's where I was going to go next. Right? That, Artificial light, circadian rhythms. I mean, in our whole sleep episode, I we just, talked about this. You know what? I just, I just did some more research on this, and you know what I did? I bought a headlamp. 
I'm going to buy a couple light bulbs, and I bought a headlamp with a red light on it, and I'm going to try like two hours before bed to like just light candles and use the red headlamp to read. And if I watch TV during that time, I'm going to watch Netflix or Hulu on my laptop because I run Flux, which is a, a, pro, a, a computer program that makes your screen on your computer yellow light instead of blue light. There's, there's a, um, uh, a set of glasses that you can buy. Yeah, yeah. Amber, or, amber colored glasses. Yeah. That you can wear but I have like. heard that blue light will affect you even if it touches your skin though that you're, you have receptors in your in your skin that pick up the vitamin, I don't know I don't know the, about the that. blue light because we think that's where vitamin D comes from is from sunlight right but but the 60,000 feet perspective is that modernity creates an unnatural situation right. an artificial situation right and that we have not yet found artificial ways of adapting our bodies to that artificial situation. Okay, so now let's go beyond right, so, I mean, So we have problems like childhood obesity, type 2 right, diabetes. Right. You know. So what I want to bring up is um, I've, I've been having a lot of conversations with people about the project I'm kind of playing with about addiction and stuff. And we did the big thing about the neurochemistry of addiction. And so I've been going back and revisiting some of that literature. And it's interesting that one of the main things – that I think there's, I think there's something happening, and this is a bigger topic that we can hit sometime. I think that through the use of digital media, through through the use of video media, and ultimately, especially the the, the use of um, lots and lots of fiction on a daily basis with the vid, with, in visual, but especially in the rise of pornography, that we are starting to live with this lens of kind of fantasy in non-reality between us and reality. We're kind of used to thinking through this filter. And I think we're... Right, the idealization of reality. Right. We're kind, yeah, right. But I think we're starting to get so removed from that, that that we're kind of pulling farther and farther back inside of ourselves and we're not really experiencing things. And I don't even know where that's at or what what, what that means yet, but I just see, I see that it's something on the horizon of the big, big, big picture where we're kind of like the default way that we engage. It's affecting a family. It's affecting how we work. It's affecting what we consider to be entertainment. It's affecting what we consider how we approach our intellectual life. It seems like we're pulling off. We're all these kind of atoms. We're all these little islands that are kind of not really People touching. Have so back to decks, but no front porches. Yeah, which is a few episodes ago too, right? right. So no, you're right, though, that I think that one of the things that is going to be an important problem for humanity to address is with modernity and all these new modes of technology and information delivery, how do we develop um, coherence and and um, and human um, societal structures mm -hmm. that promote healthy social engagements mm -hmm. in the context of all that technology, right? Mm -hmm. So social engagement was something that was normative and um, and, and necessary before the advent of the information age, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. You just, you had to talk to your neighbors because you relied on each other right. and, all, and all of that kind of thing, right? Uh, for survival, et cetera. But in our new mode, uh, social engagement can be really um, disconnected, right? Where you, you have people who could like say live on Facebook or, right. or who interact through Twitter but don't know how to hold a conversation. I certainly right? know. You know what's funny is I know more about friends of mine that live across the co on, on the other coast right. than I do my next door neighbor. And what's ironic is that I'm, we're actually friends with our next door neighbors and we haven't hung out in 
did dinner in quite a while, but I actually know more about what's going on in the life of my next door neighbor because we're Facebook friends. Right. And it's like, oh, they've been on vacation. Look, oh, I noticed that the lights have been off for a while. Yeah. Oh, look, they went to the islands. It's, right. it's like, you know, it's like that is really strange. Right. right. Well, it's, I mean, it's almost voyeuristic or something. Right. 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 I mean, Facebook has that, that dimension where it's like you're either engaged in like voyeurism of like peering into other people's lives or you're engaged in like weird self-disclosure where you're like giving people a lens into your own life or you're or you're trying to sculpt your facebook image where you're showing certain events and not yeah, other I mean, events because you're you're we're, we're all becoming brands there's another thing yeah, it's, it's almost a, like that's um, another podcast facebook is like almost like stock or be stocked you know yeah or both yeah, it's it's weird and stalking the stocked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Stalking the, well, they're stalking the stock, stalking so, the stocked. But but I guess what I'm saying is that there's got to be a mode of social engagement that is appropriate to the level of information technology we have that we have not yet like come into. And I, I, I mean, this is kind of the, this is I, Mal, I, this is Malcolm uh, Malcolm was Malcolm McLuhan or. Um, the, the, the medium is the message. Mm-hmm. What's that, just the guy's name? Malcolm McLuhan, I think his name. Um, yeah, but the, the idea that, that, that there's only, there, these different mediums affect what you can say or what right. you can do through these mediums. And I think you can that, only say so much in 140 characters. Right. Yeah. And it's a, you can only say so much in a soundbite. You can only say so much. And it's funny, it's like when you give someone. All these tools. I mean, if you're running Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, I mean, you have the level of brand engagement with the world that, like, Pepsi does on social media. Right. I mean, you, so you start thinking like a brand. You start thinking about how, what's the public perception of me through these right. but, but my, sound my bites sense of it is like, out, you know? Why would I want to be a brand? Do you know what I mean? Like, what's the point of that? What's the purpose of that? What's the value of that? I mean, that? well, I mean, if it's... The idea that you can kind of network and get – if you're trying to promote something. No, no, but just as a person. As a person, yeah. No, why would right, you? There's no value in that. Because you've been taught – because you want to be Kim Kardashian, right? I mean you want to be famous for being famous. You want to be Paris Hilton. We've been taught that being famous is a perfectly good reason to be famous and everybody wants to be famous because there's you know money, power, and sex comes along with being famous and everybody wants money, power, sex, right? I mean, so it must be good to be famous and as long as you can be famous, you it's a lot easier to become famous for being famous than it is to actually become Yo-Yo Ma and learn how to play cello really well. So, I mean, there are, I mean, we, we do see modes of social engagement that are happening out there that are artificial and yet seem to be sort of like scratching the itch. Like CrossFit is one example, right? Yeah. Where people are like getting really into that. But that's in meat world though. Well, okay, but there, but there are other examples, right? I mean, whether like you, you like to talk about those restaurants that have the community table, yeah, right, yeah. where people like who don't know their neighbors come and sit at the community table to like get to know people at a restaurant, right. or um, uh, or meetups, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, where people have social encounters through the internet. And now, and you know what's funny um, when that when the internet really first started popping, meetup was one of the first big blow ups on the internet. Yeah. And and people were really optimistic. It's like, oh man, this is we're going to use this to connect ourselves. And that being said, you know what? There are people that I was okay friends with, like in college, that I over time 
by commenting on each other's stuff and reading the articles we each post. And find, I figured out who I actually had way more in common with than I thought I did. And we've kind of connected. And now there's people that I would have walked right past in college that I went to school with. That if I saw them now, we would stop and embrace and sit down and have a cup of coffee and talk about Because I've gotten to know them. But I've gotten to know them online, mostly on Facebook or on these different forums. Yeah. I mean, it's so. I think that that is right, that can so, be real but, community, and, and we have talked about this before. Yeah, right? well, we, this like is online community. It's we talk about this all. Themes, unfortunately, <laughs> but I think so. But no, definitely but, getting back using the using the, the the digital world to get us back into the meat world is definitely something we need to start looking yeah. at. I mean, I, so I mean, just to kind of review where we've gone with this, right? Some of the big things that our generation needs to think about as far as the future of humanity, right, right are things like how the internet will or will not uh, change the way we do government yeah. uh, and, and nation states and all that kind of thing. I really think the internet is destabilizing like the way that our whole world global political yeah, system I, is set I, up. You, you, you always, I always kind of expected that you would need the new world order and all that to happen because of like global ter- you know global threat would turn into global um, some kind of totalitarian kind of government and you know big brother and it turns out if you give people enough rope they'll just kind of hang themselves it's like if you just yeah. give them chances to connect it'll just naturally kind of coalesce into this big conglomerate stateless conglomerate you know and it's um, like okay well maybe we need to decide now is that what we want? Do we really want to get rid of the micro and go to the macro? So maybe yeah, we start well, using information yeah, differently. No, so I, to be more use I, that digital to get I, more mic, I micro. I am a big fan of um, of decentralization. I don't like centralization. I think Me it's too. problematic. Okay. I mean, I'm with you. So, so the internet and government, uh, information storage, yeah, and, and preserving sure. information for posterity, new modes of social engagement. Um, and like the reinvention of community life, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know what that's going to look like. What else do we talk about? Okay, Food. so oh, uh, like light, like, like artificial environments and, right. and human bodies. So and here's like a good example. Here's a good example to make this kind of concrete of like something. That's, this is a technological example, but I started looking into this, and I guess Philips has a product called Hue that all these lights can be bunches of different colors, and you can put it in your house all throughout your house, and then set timers and you could basically make your entire house go to yellow light, like fire, the equivalent of firelight and candlelight, at 7 p.m. Hmm. You can set it. Now, what if we started realizing the lost productivity with bad sleep and all that that's being caused by blue light? So what if we started replacing all of the streetlights yeah. in all the neighborhoods with lights that go yellow at, at dark? Yeah. You know, when the light, when sun goes down, these are yellow lights. Yeah. They're not blue lights. Maybe car companies start building. Um, I don't know. Haven't you ever seen Star Trek? Filters or something, you know, in the they, screen. All they have in Star Trek are fluorescent lights. Fluorescent lights? Yeah. Like when you walk down the hallway of the spaceship, you yeah. know, it's always, it's always bright fluorescent lights. You know? Yeah. So they're probably all sleepless. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're probably all sleep deprived. Well, they did a Star Trek on the, whatever that, some, that anomaly made them all stop having REM sleep. And they all kind of went nuts because they weren't getting deep sleep. That was I'm an episode. Go back and watch that one. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's a good example. like on the on the home, like like the like nest and these but, things but, controlling I mean, environments. Yeah. Like if you think, I mean, if you think of like a spaceship as like the ultimate artificial environment. I mean, essentially, we're basically living in that right now. 
I mean, if you if you think of the way that most Americans live their lives, they spend their whole day in a building, right. in their house, or in a car, you know, in like a tiny bit of time outside. Right, and so if and you... So, so you're essentially living in a totally artificial environment with artificial air, artificial light, artificial smells, and th- that can't be healthy. <laughs> no, it's not. And it's like one thing, it's something that I've... Um... I've been reading a little bit about here lately is it, and this might just be, I'm not sure this is either super important and really real or absolute just hippie crap. One of the two, but one of the new things that's happened in the paleo movement, barefoot shoes were kind of a big thing. Mm -hmm. Now it's, it's grounding shoes, earthing. Oh yeah. And like earthing mats in your house and stuff. Yep. It turns out, and it makes sense, you know, for 2.5 million year longer. I mean, we've been walking around connected to the earth and we know the gravitational fields and all this ha- I mean uh, the um, electromagnetic fields have a huge effect mm-hmm. and it's like so now that you can buy a mat connect it to the ground on your outlet that's yep. connected to the grounding rod outside yep. and sit with your bare feet on it while you're riding on your computer and it's like you're I outside have one of these in my office do you really yep. oh I was, well <laughs> you're doing it and you're not a hippie so <laughs> you're, it's, maybe it's not a load of hippie crap so well you're at your stand-up desk yep you'll have I, to you'll I, have, I, yeah uh, my stand-up desk grounded with my two monitors yeah you will have to have um not some kind of lights. Well, you'll have to get some kind of version of that done when you build the Batman desk for when you're hanging <laughs> upside down. Because <laughs> Mark's, I've been telling Mark he needs a Batman desk. Well, yeah. all right. So whether you're going to solve all the world's problems through the internet or through creating artificial lights that are more ergonomic to our circadian rhythms or through new modes of social engagement or through having a Batman desk, we're not really sure. But we are sure that you have made it to the end of another episode of the Over the Counter Podcast. I'm Mark Easter. And I am Andrew Whaley.